From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly McGrath, your host for this episode. In 2021, 19 Republican-controlled states like Georgia and Texas passed restrictions that make it harder to vote, while also pushing reforms that can actually change who is in charge of running certain parts of our elections. Now, we're also in the middle of the once-in-a-decade event of redistricting ahead of the 2022 midterms. In redistricting, the census data from 2020 is used to draw new electoral maps. These maps can be rigged in favor of one party or another, depending on who is drawing them. That's called gerrymandering. All of these efforts, the new restrictions making it harder to vote, the so-called reforms, and redistricting will play out in the 2022 midterms and beyond. It's why we're so focused at the ACLU on expanding and protecting access to the ballot and stopping these restrictions in their tracks. Today, we're checking in with Ms. Latasha Brown, co-founder of the Black Voters Matter Fund and the Black Voters Capacity Building Institute. We first spoke to Latasha a year ago after her amazing work in expanding voting access in Georgia proved to be successful. But that was then and this is now. Challenges abound this year, likely as a direct reaction to her work. She joins us to discuss. Latasha, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here today. Can you talk a little bit uh, about about your work in the South, about Black Voters Matter and what, what your organization does? So Black Voters Matter is an organization that was founded by Cliff Albright and myself in 2016-2017. Uh, we wanted to create an organization that could help build the infrastructure, the ecosystem throughout the South, but particularly in a way that would actually help Black communities gain independent political power. We thought it was very important that we create an organization that could fund grassroots groups, that we could actually um, create messages that would speak to our communities, a message that spoke to us from the space of power and possibilities and not fear, um, and for us to really be able to be on the forefront of setting a policy agenda that is Issues that impacted our communities, the visions that we have for our communities, that we would stand up for voting rights, for reparations, for economic justice, um, against crim- the criminalization of our communities. And so we need wanted to create an organization to help build the capacity of grassroots organizations to do that work. And last time you joined us in February, we were on the fall of the last elections. We were looking at record voter turnout, looking at what happened in Georgia and voters of color able to elect candidates of their choice. What was it like at that time getting to those results and and that work? You know, so interesting. February feels like a decade ago. Uh, so much has happened since then. But, you know, February of this year, this is that's coming right off of um, the election in Georgia with the U.S. Senate seats. Um, but it's also coming right off the January 6th insurrection where we saw anti-democratic, which I think anti-Americans, to jump in in a posture that they were willing to destroy this nation if they didn't have their way. I think since that time, we've seen that continue to 
to be a lightning rod to stoke fear and to create lies. You know, on the flip side, when I think about how I was feeling in that moment and how I feel now, I still feel very hopeful. I think you've seen a lot of organizations that have been calling for the infrastructure plan and the Build Back Better plan in a way that is going to lead to some economic justice or some economic relief for communities. But also there have been a cadre of organizations like our own and others that have really been on the forefront on this voting rights fight to say that we need voting rights protection going forward. In addition to that, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing a new coalition forming right in front of our eyes. There is a new multiracial, multigenerational coalition that is forming, really, that are pro-democratic. They're supporting their pro-democracy. They're looking for economic justice and policies. You're even seeing progressive agenda being put for in the forefront and being talked about in mainstream in ways that we've not heard before. And so, yes, while... You know, I think of, of of how I felt in, in February. There was so much hope and so much energy and so momentum that came out of the election. But then we saw this January 6th insurrection. And in many ways, we had kind of this dichotomy that at the moment of our greatest hope, we saw this moment of a, of, of a group trying to inflict fear. Um, and since that time, we've seen kind of this attack on voting rights throughout the nation. You know, but the good news, like I said, the good news is that many maintain the hope that I had was never in just the outcome of the election. The hope that I was connected to is the hope of people standing up creating a new collective voice and really pushing for policies, holding this administration accountable, holding our electeds accountable, holding ourselves accountable, that we are going to demand something different. And the good news is I still see how communities are still on the forefront of leading that fight. And I'm excited to talk more about some of the things that we can do now and in the future. And I know that you've talked about and we've talked about this kind of, you know, historical trend where moments of progress for communities of color are met with pushback. And we've seen that since these census record turnout and since the work that you all did and the work that voters did to, to turn out. And so now what have we seen this year? Can you share, you shared a little bit about January 6th, and now we've seen this these tsunamis of bills of voter suppression. What has that looked like? What has your work looked like? And what have some of these bills looked like? I think what we learned in 2021 is whenever there is progress, there's a backlash, right? And we have to really be able to zone in on that so that we know as we're moving forward in the future and as we're moving a progressive agenda, we have to make sure that we're prepared as much as possible to both insulate and protect our communities for the backlash that is coming. We're seeing a Congress um, with the Democrats in power in the Senate that has failed to pass voting protection le- uh, rights and legislate federal legislation right now. I, as a and a resident and a voter of Georgia, right? The work that we did last year, just and me casting my vote last year is actually harder this year for me to vote than it was last year. So in many ways, I am being punished along with millions of others because we participated in the democratic process. And so when I think about kind of this trajectory of what happened this year, I think there are three big lessons. The first one is we have to recognize when we're pushing a progressive agenda that there's going to be a measure of backlash. And what that means for us is that we have to really organize in such a way that we're actually anticipating that to happen. The second thing is I also think we need to recognize that we really 
really have an advantage on our side, that our greatest resource are our people. That at the end of the day, what we're seeing right now, we're seeing more young people engage in the political process ever in the history of this country. And they're calling the question. They're calling the question to both of the political parties, what have you done for me lately? And they're putting pressure instead of having a loyalty to any particular party. What you're seeing is you're seeing, I think, a generation of young folks who are holding people to account of saying, we're tired of being burdened down with student debt. We're tired of seeing our families suffer or go under because of one health crisis, that we're they're demanding something different. That gives me a lot of hope. And so I also think the, the third lesson we can get out of this is that resilience, right, and resistance, like, always rise up even in the backlash. I think the lesson that we should be thinking about as we're moving forward going to 2022 is how are we going to capture like the hearts, the minds, the imaginations of the people who are standing with us now to not just say, well, let's let's fight up against this bad policy on our communities. Yes, we have to do that, but we've got to do more. We've got to really not talk about this all the time. We've got to use our radical reimagination of every single system, the criminal justice system, the economy, the education system, and we've got to push for policies that literally will uproot structural racism and create a new system that is more more inclusive and more equitable. I believe that 2021 actually kind of set the tone for that. It set the tone of we're looking at the resistance from both ends, right? But we're looking at the possibilities. And I absolutely believe that the people are on our side. I think so too, right? There's more of us that believe in racial justice, economic justice, and, and civil rights. And that's one of the things that fuels me too. One thing, though, that I'm really worried about is this enthusiasm gap that we're seeing with organizers, with voters, with folks on the ground who are just really disillusioned by the lack of results that that we're seeing and everything that's happening and just really tired. And here we are now in 2022 going into an election year. And I'm wondering for you what, what you're seeing and how that affects your work going into 2022. I'm so glad you asked that question. The truth of the matter is, yes, we are tired. I will say, I normally in an election cycle, you know, there's a, you know, 20, like 2020 election seems like it was a never ending election. I swear that election lasts for 20 years, or at least it felt like it. <laughs> you know, it was the longest, most gruesome, grueling um, election cycle and season ever. There's usually kind of an ebb and flow and there's a lull in the season and you pick back up for the midterms. There's been no lull because immediately what we had to do is to actually lead and help kind of shape this fight for voting rights. So there has been a nonstop consistent uh, work that has been planned. And so when I think about how we're thinking about 2022, I think there are two even big lessons in that. I think on one piece, I think we're not asking people, we can't continue to operate in a way that we're saying we're dependent upon a system that we know is broken, that is racist, and has been inequitable and unfair, right? Our goal is we have to organize ourselves so we organize our power, and we're going to have to take power. We're going to have 
have to start taking those seats. We This notion of a Joe Manchin, we're not going to shift Joe Manchin, but guess what? We need to move Joe Manchin out the way. We need to take seats in West Virginia. I believe that there are some people of consciousness and of goodwill that know that while their senator goes to at night to sleep at his on his yacht, right, they are literally suffering and struggling to pay their, to actually feed their families. I want those folks to be in office, right? People who actually understand the experience, have gone through the experience and have the people, the mind, the hearts and the spirit to serve people. And so what we have to do, we have to see 2022 as a year, not that whether we win or lose for the Democrats, but 2022 as a year of how can we capture power for people? How can we actually build a pipeline of young and progressive and some not so young, but a progressive and a courageous and bold leaders to actually go and take over. We need to be taking over the school boards. We need to be taking over county commissioners on the local level. We need to be taking these state seats. There should be progressive voices all across every age, every um, uh, uh, ethnic group. We should be challenging every single seat of power um, that comes open in 2022. You know, one of the things that we don't talk about often, but I think it's really critical, more so than I think the, the fight, before the fight gets to the polls, before the fight gets to an election day, we are it, have to recognize we are in a narrative war. Mm-hmm. You know, that there is a particular narrative that is rooted in white supremacy and fear. And to stoke white fear and to be a be divisive um, that we've seen be, I think, in many ways, um, the former president kind of let Pandora's box. He may be in racist cool again. Right. And so I think. We have to answer that. And the way that we answer that is that we have to show the power of the collective imagining together, creating together, and going after power together. I hope that this becomes a year for reflection in a way that we see ourselves re-energized and a way that the goal is not to burn ourselves out, but the goal is our way of how we're going to burn ourselves out of this bad basket that we've all been placed in, right? This basket of oppression. I think that we've got to see 2021 as a year of looking at what strategies work, and what strategies don't work. I think what we do know work is whenever we have showed up together as a collective, George is a prime example of that, right? That when we've shown up as a collective, we have made change in spite of what others said we could or could not do. I think Texas is the next big battleground for us to think about. Georgia has its own, um, I think Georgia will be a battleground next year, but I think ultimately we should actually take a collective breath to kind of reflect on what happened last year, but we've got to recommit ourselves, re-energize, and we've got to take this thing on. And let's talk a little bit too about some of these voting rights fights that happened in 2021 that we will be taking on in different ways as we go into this next election year. So looking like specifically at Georgia, at your home state, can you talk to us a little bit about that fight, share a little bit of the details of these laws and why, why voting will be harder in Georgia? Yeah, you know, right after the election, shamelessly, the Republicans went right into action to try to pass legislation to marginalize the voices and the voting power of 
Democratic-leaning voters in the state of Georgia. And so they've done a number of things. But one of the pieces that I think is the most egregious, um, they passed SB 202, which is a bill that was passed immediately, like right after the first session, right after the election. And it did a number of things. One is to restrict access. And the way that it restricted access, it changed the way where where and limited where we could have drop boxes. It changed and shortened the amount of time for absentee ballots. It shifted on how the counties could make decisions around um, extending or offering early uh, uh, voting opportunities. Um, and, and in addition to that, it also created extra rules for extra requirements of people providing ID before they vote absent, um, uh, absentee ballot, and just a number of things to try to restrict access. The second thing that I think it did was it wanted to create a culture of fear. And this has always been the trifecta of what we've seen of how communities of color and marginalized communities have been attacked. And so something as simple as organizations um, that have been on the ground supporting and providing comfort uh, for vote voter conference on election day as simple as providing snacks or water as people are standing in lines because what we've noticed since 2013, the Shelby versus Holder decision that gutted the Voting Rights Act, there's been a massive closing of polling sites. Um, and because of that massive closing of polling sites and other elements of how how the Republicans have weaponized the administrative process, you have we saw and witnessed the elections where people stood in at line four, five, six, seven, up to 11 hours, right? And so to provide some comfort care and some relief to keep people from leaving in line, that many of the groups provided some uh, snacks and water for them. And so they made it illegal, basically criminalized, if groups are to support um, voters while uh, they're in line to provide some comfort care. In addition to that, other rules around how close you can be, there were already rules that were in existence, but it was rules to actually create kind of this culture of fear that no Oh, nobody can help. And then the third piece is they've weaponized the administrative process. You know, one of the pieces, the worst piece of this bill is that it essentially gives the ruling party, which is in the state of Georgia right now, the Republicans, it gives them the power to remove people from the election boards indiscriminately. Um, it also gives them the power to even overturn elections if they don't like the results. You know, it is a tremendous overreach um, of powers that really undermines um, uh, uh, having a democratic system. In an election that they've created all of these, yes, we want to have safe, integral elections, an election which, um, as people may remember, the, the former lying president wanted to get a recount, and those votes were counted three times. And there was also discovered that this was most one of the, the safest and the most integral elections um, um, in the state. And so... All of this comes in the same spirit of that what we saw in the 1960s to create, to stoke fear, to restrict access, and to weaponize the administrative process. It's the same playbook. It may look a little bit different, but it's the same playbook. And so those are some of the things that have happened in the state of Georgia that as a voter, it is actually, I have less voting protection. You know, and on top of this, people may recall one of the 
issues that we've had over a number of years, and the lawsuit will be coming up in February um, to challenge this, that Fair Fight and um, Stacey Abrams had filed, was the purging of voters, that hundreds of thousands of Black voters and Democratic-leaning voters have been purged from um, the voting rolls. And so that's also been another effort. So it's almost like death by a thousand cuts. So we've seen all these pieces, and the way that we've responded is that we are organizing and educating and really thinking about how do we actually take power for our community. What will some of that work look like going into 2022 for you all? You know, like you said, we have to, you know, they're going to hit us with these suppressive laws and we have to vote in spite of it. And so what what does that look like in your in your organizing? So I think there's two things. I think like in any, there's a need for defense and offense. So on the defensive level, part of what we're doing is we're actually filing lawsuits that most of the organizations, you know, I think that's why organizations like ACLU and being able to partner with the ACLU is so important and critical for us that we have to have legal activists and legal advocacy organizations on the front lines to make sure that we are actually holding these states and these bad actors to account. We're also taking our fight as we have been continuing to take our fight to D.C., that to the halls of Congress, that we are asking for federal legislation that can provide some relief around this. We do believe that voting rights legislation, when we're looking at the Freedom to Vote Act, when we're looking at the John Lewis Voter Advancement Act, that those are two pieces of legislation that are still in the Senate, before the Senate right now, that could actually have an impact on the outcome from next year. In addition to that, we are also taking our fight to the streets. We've continued to organize people people, not only around this issue, but really around their local politics. We haven't just been focusing on federal elections. We've been focusing on local elections, those school board races, those smaller races. So that's been part of the work that we've been doing kind of on, I think, on the defensive, on the offensive side. I think we have to be proactive. We've been doing things like having warrant clinics throughout the state of Georgia. We're working with 175 organizations in 75 counties in the state of Georgia. We're working in 12 other states. And what we've been doing is and we've been going deep and local. We believe that the way that we're going to turn things around is that you have to build local power and then you build out your ecosystem. So that's what we've been doing, putting a lot of resources on the ground, funding grassroots organizations directly that are doing work on the ground and supporting them as they are actually organizing themselves around local referendums, around shifting representation on their school boards, on their county commissioners, on their in their city council, putting first, f- putting more representative um, uh, mayoral candidates in office. And so we've been doing that work as well so that we're not just responding to those attacks, but that we're actually building power so that we can help our communities best position themselves to create the kind of policy we need. Absolutely. And, you know, I come from an organizing background and working in states, and I feel like for so many years, all of us have been kind of putting up a smoke sign almost to D.C. like, hey, hello, people are suffering here. We need help. People are being disenfranchised. People cannot vote. And yet we see no action in D.C. And, you know, it's like, hey, we busted our butts. Now we have, you know, pro-civil rights people in office and still nothing is happening. So how do you deal with that? And what do you think needs to happen? I love that question, Molly. You know, when I think about that question, it makes me think about 
I'll just say as a as a black woman for the South, it makes me think about the experience of people like Harriet Tubman and W.E.D.B. Du Bois and Frederick Douglass and others that at the end of the day, they didn't have a lot. Of, I mean, it wasn't like they were dependent on people in Congress. Right. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like they had a lot of political power, but they were visionaries. You know, the, the bottom line is they were visionaries and they believed that they had the right. They had agency that they would use their power and their agency to forge a larger vision. The reason why I'm raising this is because I think that we've got to look at this from a place of power. If I look at Congress and I wait till Congress get it, I mean, they haven't gotten it yet. They're not going to get it, right? And so the goal isn't to, to, for me, it is how do we make them get it? No, my goal is how do I get us to get it? Because the moment that we get it, we won't tolerate it anymore. The moment when people say enough is enough, things will change in Congress, right? The moment that we say that you can no longer serve us, right, in a position and you can sit in the Senate and have the best health care in the nation while we suffer and go into debt and our families are destroyed because we don't have, we don't even have the capital, the resources to be able to provide health care, things will shift. And so for me, the focus, the way that I, I think is shifting the, the, the paradigm of the center point, that yes, we have to recognize right, right now now in this moment, yes, we need to put pressure on Congress, right? Let me. I'm not underestimating that or either undermining that in any way. I'm saying that we can't, we got to do both. That one, we have to stand in the space of resistance, right? And to push those to do right. But while we're doing that, we have to dream. We have to literally create new mechanisms and a new pipeline of leadership, a new pipeline. We should be drafting public policy right now, right? In our communities, that we should actually turn the, sh- the tables instead of electeds coming, people are running for office, having the audacity to tell us what agenda they're going to support. They should show up and we just tear up their agenda. We're like, we don't really care about what you thought you were going to support. If you're going to get our support, this is the agenda that we're supporting. And, I, and I've seen that happen in certain communities before. And so I think it's really important that the paradigm shift is not the people in D.C. The people in D.C. who are still in, in, in those positions of power and are abusing that, there they i don't think they have the desire the will or even in many ways the intellectual moral capacity to be able to shift i think our biggest challenge is how do you have a robust democracy when 50% of the people don't even bother to participate and part of it i think those 50% are not participating because i think there's been an intention by those of power to discourage those people from participating our job is to capture the minds and the imaginations of that 50% as well as our base to create a vision of something greater of where we want people to go and actually move towards that. That's what I think is going to happen. And Miss Latasha, it's because you're so inspiring and because you are such a visionary that you were honored this year in Glamour Magazine as one of their Women of the Year. Congratulations. That's very well-deserved. And how did that feel for you? That was actually pretty cute. That was actually, you know, that was a highlight for me. Um, It happened two days before my birthday. So it gave me a really, really good excuse to go get a pretty sparkly dress. I was really honored. One, I was just honored with the other women, um, to be with the other women that were also um, acknowledged and awarded. And then it's always wonderful to be in a space that lifts up the contributions of women. And we're able to celebrate kind of the fullness. I was able to celebrate, if you look over time, the the women that they have selected, they've had some bad ass women that 
um, have been a part of this process. And so it's been, so that was beautiful to be a part of that. My mother loved Glamour Magazine. So in some ways it was like a childhood checklist kind of fulfilled, you know, and then I think it's the other thing. I do believe the future is women. And what I mean by that is I think that, that women being, that our, our presence is disruptive that we're ch- we're taking on this white male patriarchy in a way that I think others have not and so I think that if we are to shape a nation a world that is going to be more nurturing more inclusive more equitable um, I think it's going to be women that are going to be on the helm of that. And so, you know, anytime that I can get together and be a part of a big party to celebrate women, I'm always going to say yes. <laughs> And Miss Latasha, where can folks keep up with you if they want to? Please follow me on social media. I'm very active on social media, so I talk about where we are. And some every once in a while, I post some really cool pictures. So follow me on Miss MS, Miss Latasha Brown, M-S-L-A-T-O-S-H-A Brown on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Join me. Talk to me. I love to have engagement. And also follow Black Voters Matter at Black Voters MTR. So, all right. Look forward to seeing you all. <laughs> I love it. The movement. Thank you for the all of your work and, and your leadership. We really, really appreciate it. And I'm so glad I got to talk with you. I'm so glad I got to talk with you as well, Molly. Thank you so much. And then thank you to all of the work that ACLU has just been on the forefront. They've been consistent um, in standing in that space to make sure that our civil liberties are not eroded. Um, And so I just really, really thank you and the ACLU family for all that you do to continue to fight for our freedom and liberty. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to support our fight in the year to come, you can donate by visiting aclu.org liberty. That's aclu.org liberty. We really appreciate your support. Unfortunately, folks, this is my last episode hosting the podcast. I'm going to miss you all, but don't worry, you're in great hands. Samuel Trivedi of our Criminal Law Reform Project is next. Until next time, stay hopeful and keep organizing.